Shut up and sit down. Hello, can you hear me now? I have just been chatting away to you guys and nothing. <laughs> what I was trying to tell you. Um, oh, so on the phone you could hear me, Jeep. Okay. Um, okay, okay. Um, what happened was I had to use the internal service, and I was trying to turn the sound down, and I turned my mic off by accident. So now I know how to mute my mic, but I still don't know how to turn down the sound. So Jilly is probably going to thunder in my ear. So let's just get this over with and see how it goes. Okay, talk to me. Am I am I thundering? Yeah, yeah. I can't figure out how to turn it down. It's not, it's not your fault. I'm gonna I'm gonna move my headset just a little bit, like on my on my cheekbone instead of my ear. So maybe that will help. Okay. But yeah, I was just chatting away and nothing. Because I had my I, I had my mic turned off. Because I don't normally use their internal service. I prefer to use Skype. Because their internal service got wonky about a year ago, and I lost faith in it. Of course, now I can't figure I can out see how, how you could lose. Yeah. That's interesting. I'm hearing myself. Hmm. Do you have your computer speakers on? No, no. I don't have the podcast loaded anyway. I have no idea. Reverb. It's, it's, it's probably your cheekbone vibrating or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little weird. Yes, what did you say in those, like, minute, minute and a half? What were you saying? I was in. bitching. I was bitching about the the thing that I just bitched about again. <laughs> Let me put a little note. There is, is it about a minute? Yeah, it's about a minute, I think. I might be able to edit it out after the fact. I'm getting rid of the dead air. Because sometimes in the past I've said shit that I shouldn't have said. I've said names I shouldn't have said during the live broadcast and gone back in and and kind of edited it out, kind of snitched it a little, you know. So I might be able to edit that dead air out of the um, out of the front for the for those of you for those of you who download. So that this conversation might be like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I did figure out how to turn the volume down, so we're good. I think. Are you still okay. vibrating in your ear? No, I'm not getting that kind of funny. It was this weird kind of reverb of my own voice, but it wasn't exactly like an echo. Oh, we already done the dead air fix. We had a whole podcast dedicated to the dead air fix. Uh, dead air variations, yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
There's a um, there's a and whole podcast it, dedicated to that. And yet it can still come up with so many tropes, even if you just don't look at various ways of dealing with dead air. There are so many tropes, like justice, that it can apply to. <laughs> right, and yeah, that's going to have to start. But interestingly, about that dead air podcast, it averages 150 to 200 listens every week. Really? Yes. It's like one of my it's most very popular podcasts. for people. <laughs> the only podcast that's actually probably more popular is the one where I spend 20 minutes um, explaining anal sex. <laughs> Both very, very emotional topics for people. <laughs> Go figure. Go figure. After Legacy came out, the Harry, the James Parley's Britain podcast exploded. I had like a thousand um, listens um, it, um, during that week. So... It's interesting. Context. The, the context, butt sex one. Um, I would have to look it up because what had happened was is I was looking through my statistics and I'm saying, why is this thing so popular? And then I clicked on it and like I don't know, ten fifteen minutes. There's a whole discussion about the the literal logistics of anal sex. Because I had read a fic where somebody had said something in a fic that I just thought was anatomically impossible, and it was. Um, that's kind of like when you read some het fic and there's some teenage girl writing about somebody's womb getting plundered. Oh. Oh. Come on now, if you've got if, if you've got a the dick in your womb, you're going to the emergency room. Something is. That's not how any of that, that works. No. It really isn't. Anyways. I think we have read a story with the, um, where there was like a deep, double penetration situation going on and like the two, the two, the two penetrators were standing side by side. And it's like, <laughs> that's the bad, that was no. the start. That was the start. No. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Unless that man's like ass that. is the Grand Canyon, I don't think so. Even if it's the Grand, but you still need. I mean, you're talking only that kind of even begins the works. Is if you're talking dick tentacles, right? I mean, and I, I, I'm not down <laughs> for dick tentacles. Well, it depends on the fandom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, in Star Trek, I could totally buy Dick Tentacles. In fact, I I wrote a whole little short scene. I did. Everybody had tentacles in that particular thing. Even the woman. She had less tentacles than the man, though. Dick Tentacles need disclosure. I'm just saying. (laughs) They need to be upfront and personal. Yeah. Both in the fic and to your readers, you know? Because, like, you know, you just don't spring Dick Tentacles on on your partner. It, It needs to be discussed. Not especially double dick tentacles. <laughs> it doesn't need to be a surprise or a mystery. <laughs> but yes, there was that whole podcast dedicated to the magical, well, the magical, the butt, the, the mystical magical butt sex mystery tour or something like that. I had to put that on my site once about there being a magical butt sex mystery tour or something like that. Yeah. Because I had gotten all these het readers and people kept, like, one lady told me she sent the link to her mom. And I was like, be careful. <laughs> Tell your mom to be really careful. 
does, unless you want her to go on the mystery, the magical mystery butt sex tour. (laughs) Now, the mystery, the placement of mystery in that sentence is very important because if it's the magical mystery butt sex tour, that could be alarming. You don't want butt sex to be a mystery, but if it's the magical butt sex mystery tour, that is just, you know, the the tour is a mystery, not the butt sex. Well, it would be a mystery for somebody who'd never read it, which was the point. I had just posted True. Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, and there were all these uh, het readers coming in to the fandom, you know, you know, from the fandom into my site reading, who, who had never been there before, and they were giving wrecks. And this one lady literally told me she sent the link to her mom. And I was like, um, you just sent your mom a link to a site full of gay sex? Did you tell her? that there's gay sex here? Did did you? Because I, I don't want to upset your mom. <laughs> did you tell her yeah, there's Yeah, it was like here? during the first year, Edie, it would, it would have been like, um, it was in the first year of my podcast, so it's a hot mess. I'll try to find it for you. I'll try. Um, because, because at one time, it was very, very popular. But, yeah, not so much anymore. Oh, my God, I'm not a Frappuccino. <sighs> my life is hard. My first world problem. No, I don't mean Because I don't think I actually put butt sex in the title. I probably should, just to, you know, <laughs> make it easier <laughs> to find. The oh. one that we discussed, butt sex, yeah. That actually might be in the description put it in the description. Um, but anyways, we're going to talk about justice and revenge tropes tonight because they're very validating and they're very popular and often they're done very wrong. Yes. That's true. Yes. That's very wrong. So we're going to talk about it. It needs to be said. Gosh, I have 251 podcasts. Wow, I know. I went to blog. I went to blog talk and just googled butt sex. I got a lot more hits than I than I expected. <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> so you have an episode called "Bottoms Up" back from 2015. That might have been it. One of my favorite, while you're doing that, one of my favorite, um, I actually have a podcast called Dick Privilege. I don't remember. There was a time when I really didn't honestly care um, if I got advertising or not, as you can see. (laughs) Still those ice pirates and, and ranting. I remember that one, ice pirates. And oddly enough, that's not the one with the butt sex in it, I don't think. There was no literal butt sex. I mean, I, on the air. There was just a discussion of butt sex. Oh, that's a long link. Let me try for something shorter. Goodness gracious. Here we go. Although I have to say that the 
the um it might be it that that might be it bottoms up the the summary of the the way it starts the fandom preoccupation with who is taking up the butt is nothing short of extraordinary i think one of my favorite summaries ever (laughs) (laughs) i think that is it but you guys don't listen to it right now listen to me talking right now (laughs) don't listen to old me talking listen to new me talking yeah, it is. <laughs> Jafar Cree. <laughs> anyways, um, anyways, um, and if that's not it, it's actually really entertaining either way. Anyway, so you'll enjoy it. Um, but I'm pretty sure that's it because it was really popular at one time. Um, not so much now, um, compared to other podcasts, but for a while there, damn, everybody and their brother, I was like, how is this getting so many hits? Can I put any advertising in this? <laughs> I think I do have two or three advertisers in it that, um, weren't opposed to the subject matter. <laughs> but yeah, I don't actually have any control like, over who, um, ends up in my advertising slot, um, there are some that allow explicit content and some that don't, and I don't have any control over that. So if you're ever listening to a podcast and you hear an advertisement for something that you think is just completely polar opposite to me, you can guarantee that I had nothing to do with it actually being put in there. I don't have any control over that. Because I remember listening to a podcast last year, and there was actually a fucking um, campaign after that, Tangerine. I was like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. Only one. Only that one time. <laughs> anyways. Um, anyways. My my favorite kind of revenge fic is also coincidentally time travel. Because then you know what every fucked up thing every asshole ever did to you. So you can get the most ultimate revenge possible. <laughs> hmm. As McKay would say, leave asshole, leave no asshole unreamed. <laughs> well, the thing a lot of times with time travel and revenge, a lot of times you're getting revenge, you're preventing something that happens. Um, I have a harder time incorporating revenge into that because I don't even know why what you're getting revenge for. I guess it depends on how far back you go. Yeah, I miss the emojis too, but I can't figure out how to put them in this chat wing thing. But the best thing about chat wing versus the other chat room we had and blog talk is it doesn't censor you, and I'm not paying anything for it. Just saying. Because the, the other chat room I had, I was paying for it, and it was shitty. So I'm really proud of this one. Yeah, it was really terrible that you had to pay for that, and it was so awful. It just wasn't great at all, but it was the only option I had at the time. And then Chatwing came out, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> at least you can put porn in there, as Azure, I'm sure, will be more than happy to demonstrate. Um. Um, but, um, yeah, time travel. I love to um, revenge and time travel at the same time. Combining tropes, I mean, I'm all down for things being completely trope-tastic. So, you know, put as many great tropes into one story as you can. I'm all over it. But um, vengeance is not really one of my favorite tropes. Um, 
um, I'm not even really sure why, because I'll read a good vengeance story. I guess it's because a lot of times, um, a lot of the common vengeance tropes kind of leave me cold. Um, sometimes they can be really done, you know, anything can be done really well. But, you know, like the, um, um, there's a, there's a trope, um, where, like, you turn the person, like, who's a, who's some kind of, got some kind of hate issue, a bigot or a racist or something, and they're turned into the thing that they hate. Um, yeah, that's just kind of, I just never kind of, that, that particular trope, I don't know that I've ever read that one that ever does, it does it for me, but it's a common trope. Um, the 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 whole the trope of where you're kind of talked out of your your revenge because um, it's not going to make you feel better when you get it kind of thing it's not going to help um, or they get the revenge and then it doesn't help they don't feel any better um, I kind of lots of times end the stories like that where they don't feel better getting their revenge and I really want them to read a story where they just feel spectacular for all the revenge that they got you know. It's like they work that hard for them. I want them to revel in it, you know. Like, <laughs> I'm going on vacation. Now I'm going to Disneyland, you know, as opposed to my life still sucks. I'm still miserable. What did I do this for? I sacrificed my soul to kill all these people, and I don't feel any better. And I was like, well, gee, now I don't feel any better either. <laughs> I'm living vicariously through you, character. You're supposed to be enjoying this. I guess why I like Darkly Loyal so much is because they just are really all up in it. <laughs> well, there you go, Azure. You just put a big old dick in my chat room. I was I was looking at the um damn I was looking <laughs> I was looking at the um options on why chat room if we could turn on um I because I told her she could put porn up and she decided to dis- demonstrate. Um uh I was trying to look at the settings for um Chatwing and um damn I come back over here and there's a dick in my chat No penis copters. No, no, no. I can't concentrate with scary things. What what settings are you trying to change? I was looking to see all the settings, but they have this advertising thing going on right now, and I can't do anything but look at their fucking advertising. But I was trying to see if they had an option to turn on turn on anything, you know, like um, if I could turn on emoticons or something. But it doesn't appear to be. Wait, there is there is emoticons. Where are they? No, no, no. Mm. Good lord. 
Come on now. I'm trying to do a podcast. I take it back. You can't post porn right now. I have never seen a 3D penis in my life until now. Well, you know, except for a real one. Especially when it's saying hi to me. Let's talk about revenge. I couldn't just hold my hand up. No. <laughs> Some gifts do not need to be there. Okay. Yeah, I had to get it out of the frame. Um, it was it was communicating or something. <laughs> it was like mind control or something. I couldn't deal. Okay. Um, my favorite justice trope is they brought that shit on themselves, which is people, you know, sort of, sort of a hoist with their own petard kind of thing, you know. You dug your own grave. That's my favorite type. That's one of my favorite tropes. Is just like I didn't have to do anything to you. You did it all to yourself. Um. I think some fandoms that works really well in. NCIS is a really big one, so they brought that show on themselves. And Harry Potter's another one where the they brought that show on themselves kind of thing kind of works really well. Um, because you have so many people doing terrible things, so you can sort of deploy the trope uh, without a whole lot of effort. We're noodling on emojis. Uh, I was actually trying to think what some of my favorite vengeance stories are. For some reason, I'm drawing a blank. I know I've read a lot of them. My favorite vengeance story I ever wrote was Darkly Lull. I need to finish that. Uh, I, I am one chapter from finishing. Oh, you terrible tease. I know. I think, I don't know, I think sometimes I, I, I have, um, I think the only one of my stories is really a big vengeance story. Um, <laughs> I hope that was over your headphones, Dark Seraphita. She was listening to um the podcast while she was on the bus and we were talking about dick tentacles, so I hope that was Ah, yeah, she's trying not to laugh. <laughs> um I think the only story I've written that really focuses heavily on a vengeance scene is subversive. And I have a really hard time not going to really dark places with vengeance things. Like, I just want to, you know, it just, it's kind of, I think maybe it's my, um, probably I wrote a lot of revenge and vengeance-based stuff in my X-Files days, and that's that sort of like that, those are the dark days of my writing. Trying not to fall back into it. Murder sprees and stuff like that. Did you 
fix the emojis. No, they were all they were always there. They just um, we weren't using them right. Indeed, you got to use the you got to use the traditional um, emoticons, emojis. Yeah. yeah, the emoticons. Yeah, um, and they'll pop up. Yeah, like that. Anyways, um, I think that honestly, when you, when you look at the base of a time travel fic, that they're often rooted in um, some sort of revenge. Or, or, well, I don't know. Or justice, or justice. Um, because to um, um to get to the point where you want to voluntarily travel back in time, it's because you're you're desperate for something. But maybe it's not. What, it may not really be revenge or justice. It might just be. I mean, I think I think that most time travel stories are rooted in fixing things. Um, isn't that kind of a justice back, depending on the circumstance? Depending, but I mean, because the kind of thing is, is if the person, I mean, I guess it's kind of like maybe kind of like an existential justice, but if the person that wronged you doesn't know that they wronged you because it's before they wronged you, it's not really vengeance or justice in any kind of traditional sense. Um, so well, I think know, it's definitely like vengeance. If someone, you know, I don't know, killed somebody I love and I went back in time and killed them before they could kill my person, I would totally consider that vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I agree completely, but I think Vengeance on the shit you were going to do. <laughs> but most time travel stories I've read don't go the path of, like, murder sprees before, you know. Um, let's see. Um, look at my, I think about the Hobbit stories I've read. I don't think, other than killing Smaug, like, lay down your, the was it lay down your weary head or whatever that story is. Other than killing Smaug um, a few hundred years early, there's not really a vengeance element to that. It was more preventing a lot of um, tragedy. So like I said, it would be kind of like an existential kind of justice thing, but um, because I tend to think of vengeance as being kind of, you know, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, bring bring revenge down on your head kind of thing as opposed to something you're not even aware that you did and haven't even done yet in that timeline. Oh well, you know, actually, when it boils down to it, vengeance is particularly is um, is selfish. Um, it's about how you're feeling and and what you want to experience before and after the circumstances change. But justice is making the other person regret their life choices. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a fine line between vengeance and justice because sometimes pursuing um, you can see pursuing justice to the point that. It looks more like revenge. I've even seen that stuff in some stories where somebody talk about, you know, you're pursuing this person. You know, this your pursuit of justice here is looking more like revenge than it looks like justice. Um, and it is, it, it can be a very fine line between the two. Um, am I doing, is the character doing something for revenge or um, just kind of... Now, the funny thing is, I like, one of my favorite things to do... Um, 
in like we're in to read in the NCIS animals where Tony just lets the chip fall where they may. And in a way that's sort of like justice in a way, but Tony's motivation for doing that is not about justice. It's about, okay, I'm just going to stop intervening. I think that's totally a vengeful kind of motive. Um, even if what the person got was justice for their actions, Tony's motive in letting that justice ha- happen was vengeful. And rewarding. Very rewarding. There's honestly nothing better than seeing somebody that messes with Tony get get theirs. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's less rewarding for me personally if Tony has to be an asshole to accomplish it. So, um, I do. That like is a big one. When when you, when you turn your character into a monster, a genuine monster. It can be very uncomfortable for your reader. I think a lot of people had problems with Darkly Lowell for that reason because I, um, they kill indiscriminately, and people, some people had a real problem with that. I was amused, but others were horrified. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I don't care. I mean, I care that you, you know what I mean. I mean, I'm, st- I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to post it. I'm, I'm not going to change any of that. The death count will be higher by the end of the fic instead of lower. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. Go back and right. plug out some mean, of those murders. <laughs> yeah, you, but you labeled you labeled that really carefully. You know, you labeled that really clearly what that was going to be. Um, yeah. So if somebody didn't want to read their their unicorn going down the venge- vengeful path and killing people. They don't have to read that story because it's really clear. I mean, it's labeled right on the tin what's inside. It's got its Surgeon General's warning and everything. Um, whereas, you know. If you're reading kind of a just the thing that sort of reads like in the in the description as being a little bit more justice focused, um, where you know like Tony's just going to let them suffer the consequences of their actions or whatever, regardless of what his motive is, he doesn't take any overt action to make their consequences worse. He's just you know whatever it is. But when you turn him into a dick, um, and especially an abusive dick, verbally abusive dick. Um, that it becomes hard to empathize with the character then. So it can be very uncomfortable. Or the emotional ninny who has a meltdown in the middle of the bullpen and screams and cries. Oh, or I don't know which is that. It, it depends upon my mood from day to day as to which one I just like more. Um, okay, Tony. What's going on here? Well, yeah. And for me, I'm okay with Tony's motive being vengeful. Um, I'm okay with him being either just like I want to get out of here or being vengeful because his lack of his inaction can have the same result. They um, suffer the consequences of their action. It's when he, um, like, if if Tony were to like frame like do something to make their their actions or inactions worse than they are. I wouldn't like that at all because it would it would if for my for my see, you're people people can do it, but for me, um, you know, I have a perception about Tony as being the person on the team who's like the least ethically compromised. So if he were to like go a vengeful route where he's framing people and manufacturing um bad behavior that they didn't that didn't exist, 
that'd be difficult for me from a characterization perspective based on how I see him. Um, but if his motive for walking away is to just let them fall flat on their faces and it's vengeful, I'm fine with that. If his motive is just he wants to get away and then they suffer because he's not there, I'm good with that too. Um, they have It looks the same on the surface, but one has more of a justice angle by their own actions, and the other has more of a vengeful ang- angle based upon Tony's thought process. Um, I like them both. I like both. It is a little bit more of a justice trope, though, because they're suffering consequences of their own actions. You know, that's that whole they brought that shit upon themselves sort of thing. And I like that as long as he doesn't walk away knowing somebody else who shouldn't be hurt is hurt. Right, right. Like, if Tony walks away from that dead air situation and doesn't – this is actually me I have a problem with. In the dead air situation, if Tony just walks away and it is not brought to someone's attention what they did and that they broke protocol in some fashion, whether it's kept behind the scenes and hushed up or whatever – if he says nothing and they do it to somebody else and somebody else gets killed, Tony has a certain level of culpability in that because he knew that they were prone to breaking, breaking protocol. So um, that can be dicey. Um, now, it, it all depends on how you spin it. Tony could tell his bosses, and they say we're going to deal with it, but we, we want to deal with it quietly behind the scenes. That could piss him off, and he decides to leave. And then there's consequences of him not being there. That could piss him off, and he decides to leave and blow the whistle about stupid shit at NCIS. That could be both justice and vengeance, depending upon or both, depending upon how you look at it. Um, um, if the whole thing could be loud and out, and way out in the open, but just him sort of slinking away in the night and not telling anybody, um, it's actually a really difficult thing for me to deal with because it shows a lack of insight on Tony's part about um, what kind of things a team leader needs to know about. And that's the kind of behavior that a team leader would absolutely have to correct even if they weren't going to fire people over it, which it would be befuddling to me that they wouldn't. It also speaks to his um, his self, self-esteem and self-worth, the assumption that they did it only because it was him and they wouldn't do it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's a form of, uh, I don't want to say, it's, it's arrogant to assume that he's special in that circumstance, that they wouldn't do it to anybody else but just to him. It's a form of arrogance. Yeah, it's either arrogance or, um, like you said, his self-esteem is so low that he would have to believe they hate him enough to put him in harm's way like that and that he deserved it in some fashion, in which case he's not healthy enough to be performing his duties mentally. There's a lot of spins I read on some of the stuff where I, I think Tony's not healthy enough to wear a badge. I, he wouldn't pass a psych exam. I'm like, whoa, if that's his motivation and that's the way he thinks, how could he have functioned in his job? I mean, he is. I mean, if they actually did psych exams. But based on what I see well, from law yeah. enforcement on a regular basis, I don't think they do. <laughs> well, they don't. But, I mean, I, I actually think Tony, in some of the stories, I, I think he's so emotionally broken. I don't know how he does his, in the, in, based on, you know, talking about fan, fan authors' perception of things. He's written as so 
emotionally broken that I don't know how he has functioned as an adult to get where he's gotten. Um, I, it just doesn't make sense. So it's just one of those things that have to be considered. Like, if you're going to make a character that fragile emotionally, um, could they have gotten to that point in their life? Could they have, you know, held down a job? At God? Could they do undercover work? Um, could they hold down, you know, and gotten in advance fairly quickly through um, the ranks in the police and at NCIS if they were that emotionally fragile? You guys ever have dogs and you know that they're outside and you think maybe they've killed a squirrel or a chipmunk or hell, maybe even a possum. And you think to yourself, do I go out there and take it away from them? Or I just hope by morning there isn't enough left for me to clean up. Okay, that's, my current, that experience. that's my current experience right now. That, that That's what I'm experiencing. I'm pretty sure they caught something. I don't know what it is. I don't want to go out and look. This is what happens when you have two breeds of dog in your in your yard who who like to hunt. We must not like a terrier. Terriers are so territorial, um, and hunting, and they're. Avenging themselves on something outside, and I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't want to know. Cats are honestly worse. I have more animal delivered to my back door when I had a cat than any other. Although the last time my Jack killed a killed a rabbit, he brought me what he didn't eat. <laughs> like a little serial killer offering. Are you still there? Have I grossed you out? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> Here's a dead gecko. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I don't need anything dropped in my lap. I've I've had that experience with a cat. Um, it was still alive. It wasn't quite dead. Um, no. But yeah, they've they, they've got something. It'll be at my back door in the morning, whatever it is, whatever they leave of it. My husband will clean it up. Because <laughs> that's his job. <laughs> is that sexist? I don't care. <laughs> it's the man's job. No, there's there's division of labor in every relationship, and he has got just some somebody has to kill the spiders, and somebody has to clean up the dead things on the back porch, and. I kill the spiders. I don't have a problem killing spiders. There you go. <laughs> there's a common um, one of my. There's a. There's. A, it's actually. Um, uh, it's, it's a very common. Um, 
sort of revenge trope. It's also a little bit, it crosses over to justice quite easily, which is the um, the best revenge is a life well lived or something like that. Um, that can be very satisfying, which is, it typically it works really well in fandoms like NCIS, where you have a character who goes off and does really well with their life, and everybody else's life kind of falls apart. Um, that can be very satisfying. Um, it can also kind of come out kind of trite. And you have to kind of think through the ramifications of the decision you're making. Um, but it's like if they're capable of all of the things that they went off and did after being, you know, with, you know, I don't know. Um, I'm throwing random crap out here. Like Tony leaves NCIS and he goes off and gets four PhDs and I don't know, joins the Stargate program and reinvents how to create a stable wormhole. And it, okay, 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 great. I'm, I, whatever. That's all fine. Um, Maybe a little improbable, but it's fine. But the question is, if he was, if he, if he had that capability and that interest, what kept him at NCIS for ten years, or twelve years, or fourteen years, right? And a lot of times that question isn't that that question is never answered in stories where you have the life well lived thing. Is um, well, but if your departure point from canon was twelve years in. Um, where was all this awesomeness for the first 12 years? You know, what was the what was the thing keeping them in place and not achieving? So it's something to really consider um, when you're going to do a, a kind of a, a revenge trope of that nature. I would say about that kind of fundamental change to a, to a character um, is you need to keep in mind that we are a summation of our experiences. Um, every disappointment, every experience, every relationship, um, every decision that we make um, impacts who we become. Um, human beings aren't made in a vacuum. You don't come out of the womb who you're going to be. Um, Everybody and everything around you, every decision you make, every turn you take, every everything changes who and what you are. Uh, so if you want Tony to be an astrophysicist, you have to go back. You have to go back and influence him in his formative years, not when he's 30, not when he's 40. We're talking four or five years old. Mm-hmm. You need to have him raised with his mom's sister who teaches physics at Cambridge. <laughs> or his mom's brother-in-law. Who also has a son named Raddick. <laughs> I'm just saying, you have to you have to change their circumstances. But no, even if you if you, even if you make him a super genius like Rodney, he never goes near law enforcement. Somebody like Rodney 
in order for him to get into like okay, I have Rodney in a um in an AU where he's an FBI agent, he's a profiler for the FBI, and all of his degrees are social science related um, and brain chemistry. He's also a guide. He's um, a sentinel and a guide. He's part of a guide. Um, and he grew up in a very different world where their sentinel guides are known. And he uh, he's in law enforcement because someone close to him was murdered. And he's in the FBI, part of a behavioral science unit, because that person was murdered by a serial killer. So he grew up wanting to change that circumstance, wanting to make that circumstance better for the next person that comes along, right? So he didn't decide one day in the middle of getting his degree in physics to go get a degree in psychology, it happened way the hell before he ever even got near college, a university. And that's what and that's what we're talking about. If you're going to make radical changes to your character like that, you need to start them really young in their formative years. You need to give them experiences that explain that change. And if you make Tony a super genius who's the um, second in command of a criminal unit in the NCIS, that makes zero sense. Right. Well, if someone with that level of intelligence would be bored out of their fucking mind, he'd be he he already have a stronghold somewhere with sharks with lasers on their heads. Okay, right. Because <laughs> well, the last thing you want to do is are, bore someone with Rodney's intelligence. Well, there are there are different kinds of intelligence aptitudes. Um, I've always seen Tony as being super intelligent in like solving a puzzle. Um, bringing clues together in any kind of puzzle. So I think you could extend that in a lot of... So I see stories where he's got a PhD in criminology or something. I totally have no issue with making that leap. Even psychology um, or sociology, anything that involves the understanding of people, putting together clues, you could even extend that to um, code-breaking, I think, with Tony, somebody like Tony, um, where it would all kind of fit into a... um, the pattern of what we see you could but i think that if you're going to have him making a departure into one of those fields it has to be happen early enough in canon where it makes sense that he's kind of outgrown the law enforcement bubble that he's in but when you put him in law enforcement for like 20 years total and then have him make that departure it becomes less plausible um that he's got all this going on under the hood and he's not doing anything with it so I mean, there's just it's just something you have to consider, um, you know. With but if he has the kind of intelligence attitude Rodney has, um, it doesn't make sense that he went down the professional sports path um, unless he was just trying to do it to be contrary. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and even then, you just something to be contrary. There's a limit on it. Yeah, there is a limit because he's going to get bored. He's going to he's going to have that basement of inventions that are going to get him in trouble with Shield or something. Um, you know, it's just it's you got to kind of balance out those decisions as opposed to just Tony walks away from NCIS after 12 years, um, a total of 18 years in law enforcement, and somehow he's got seven PhDs, you know, hiding, and he's done absolutely nothing with any of it. So it's just. See, the thing is about balance out. the government wouldn't let somebody on their payroll with seven PhDs hide. You're that smart. Mm-hmm. You need to come here. Come here. 
agent. Come why, here. <laughs> why are you looking at the senior field agent? Excuse me, what the fuck? We're going to give you this, and you're going to do this for us. That, that would be great. You don't want to do that? How about this? Because that, that's the thing. You have expectations of people around you, and you can't hide seven fucking degrees. No. Seven fucking degrees so, equals read. That's Bruce, Bruce Banner. That's Bruce Banner. He has seven degrees, seven PhDs. Um, does he? He has two. He has an MD and a PhD. You can't hide that level of degree. You can't hide that level of degreedness. It's no, not hideable. <laughs> no. So because you know, universities even, brag even about one, their PhDs. <laughs> one criminal Google Zenozo. <laughs> oh, right, dude. Why do you have a degree in physics if you're working in law enforcement? Right, and if Tony even had one PhD in psychology, there's going to be lots of questions raised about. You know, why he's hanging around is, you know, as it is, Tony was such a good investigator, there should have been lots of questions by any competent director about why he was hanging out as kids second in command. But they kind of, the show, in terms of the show's writing, they boxed Tony into the point that the only way to solve the, the, the contradictions of his character was to let him leave the show. Because the stuff Michael Weatherly said in interviews over the years was that it was like alluded to they were going to fix Tony's storyline, um, and then they never quite managed to do it. Um, and like you say, yeah, next year we're going to be seeing Tony coming out of the shell, and he's going to be moving into new paths. And he would say that at the end of one season, at the end of the next season, there'd be nothing new. So it's like I think that the writers knew they had a problem they didn't know how to fix, and ultimately the only way they could fix it was Michael Weatherly going, oh, I'm tired of this shit, I'm leaving. So, because his character wasn't going anywhere, it wasn't doing anything, and it didn't make sense that he would be such a competent investigator and still be second string on that team. So, the show presents a lot of contradictions, and um, it's funny how, I do have this funny expectation of fan fiction writers that if they're going to start to address that contradiction, that they address it better than the show addressed the contradiction. So, like, you know, giving Tony a better exit, great. Giving Tony a better exit in season 12, no. <laughs> we're not addressing the contradiction, right? It's like, back that shit up, right? Address the contradiction. So, um, I, have read, I have read a couple stories. It's a good, it's an interesting take that Tony's undercover the whole time. Um, that NCIS is an undercover gig. Um, it's interest. I find that to be an interesting idea. It is um, very difficult to be undercover for twelve years. Um, it's implausible. I mean, I think that what they say is like implausible. And, and unless he basically had a total personality transplant, um, being undercover for two to three years is mentally. Um, he would lose himself. That's how you lose yourself. That would be actually honestly be no different than being abandoned on a, on a desert island for three years and having only yeah. yourself. You revert. Three years reversion on a human being. You're in the wilderness eating raw fish out of the ocean. Okay, that's like legit. That's how fast we can revert. You put somebody undercover for 12 years, they wouldn't even know who they were when they came out. Yeah, it would be... It'd be... He there, would there be Tony Dinozo. 
I can't remember what the story was. It was it was, it was very good. But there was a story. It was it was a short, as I recall, um, a kind of addressing how difficult it is for Tony to just come back from short undercover assignments, and that he had kind of a decompression method where he would go to Gibbs' place, and um, Gibbs would help bring him back to who he was, because he wouldn't, you know, after three or four months living. Um, being and pretending to be somebody else, that he would need this, this decompression. Um, and somebody would help remind him who he really was. And the writer had written, it was just really well done about, you know, how Gibbs was his touchstone. To, um, I believe it was Tony Gibbs' story, but I could be wrong about that. But how Gibbs was his touchstone for what his real life was and helped bring him back. Because Tony would, wouldn't be able to answer to his own name when he would come in from a long undercover assignment. So if that is, and I felt like that was plausible for you know, a three to six month assignment. When you're talking about more than a decade, that person has, when they come off that assignment, they're going to have to regrow their personality. They don't know who they are anymore. It's one of the reasons why people don't go undercover that much. If I wrote Tony as a double agent, which I think is actually more plausible than undercover for 12 years, it's just my personal opinion. Um, I would make him someone that the NSA or the FBI or the CIA or whoever made the NID, whoever, whoever, how you want to play it, recruited after he was already at NCIS, maybe around the time that Vance became the director. Because Jenny has expiration period because of her illness. So I'm, I'm not sure that plays as well unless you, t- unless you take her illness out completely. Because um, the only reason somebody would be undercover at NCIS in that particular building would be to investigate the director. Right. At that level, at, at, at Tony's level, that's somebody looking at the director of NCIS. And I think Vance would be an excellent foil in that particular situation. Um and not so much that he's undercover, but that he's a double. That he is actually an NCIS agent, but he's also working for somebody else. That makes more sense to me than an undercover operation where he came into NCIS undercover. And he's actually somebody else. Because then that gives him, the, he's, basically, he's basically being who he is. But he also has this extra thing going on. And that kind of preserves the core personality and he's not forced to be on stage 24-7 for 12 years or, or, or ever how right. he play it. And it would explain why he didn't accept promotions or whatever. Um, it's because he's got this double, this double agent assignment. Um, but he's, and he has to be bought into the reasons why he's doing what he's doing. So let's um. So since I got we got I got Tony on the brain, let's think about Tony actually getting revenge for something. What would he like go on a full on revenge spree over? My first inclination is terrible. Oh, let's hear it. I love your terrible inclinations. The murder of Gibbs. Oh yeah, he would. That's scorched earth territory right there. It really is. But if you twist it we're not, just we're not a little. my unicorn, we can play with this. 
Uh, or if you twist it just a little and make his relationship with Kate a little more sisterly, a little less antagonistic, I could see him go scorched earth over Kate. And that preserves your OTP if you're that kind, people who's listening. Um, or, but if Ari killed Gibbs on that rooftop, Yeah, at that point, at that point in canon, Tony would, Tony would, yeah, it would be a scorched earth kind of situation. There would be a smoking crater, somewhere. Nose even wouldn't be on the MCRT. I don't think if if Ari killed Gibbs on that rooftop, Tom Morrow wouldn't have left NCIS because Morrow didn't leave NCIS in. Shepard's hands. He left NCIS in Gibbs's hands. But if Gibbs goes down, Morrow stays. Maybe not permanently, but he would stay longer, and it wouldn't be Shepard who takes his place. And Ziva would be on Tony's hit list just as much as Ari, mm. if not more. But, I mean, it never made sense to me that Tony ever tolerated Diva on the MCRT. I mean, just from a realistic, even over Kate, it never right. made sense that he tolerated her even on. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the things that's all. Um, Um, I can see Tony. The same thing is, I don't think Tony is um, a hothead about being angry. That's not how I perceive him. I see um, scorched earth for him would be down bringing down everybody that he saw as complicit in any whatever whatever mechanism, whatever method got got um, gets killed. So if it was Airy, it would be all the people at the State Department complicit in letting Airy operate within the U.S. Plus the people at Mossad who had put, so it would be all of the disease. Um, it would be um, the people at State and at the FBI who had prohibited them from dealing, taking care of Airy and seeing him as the threat that he was. I don't see Tony as just kind of going off the, going off the, getting hot, like a hot, hot-headed angry and just shooting somebody. No, um, I don't either, I but he's had a flash a brain flash. I had a bunny. Oh God, it hurt my head actually. I had this 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 scene in my head where Tony is sitting in a room, and Jack O'Neill walks in and drops a folder on the um, desk and a table and sits down in front of him and said, "So, you've made a lot of people mad." <laughs> and Tony's like. They started it. <laughs> <laughs> don't start no more. Be none. They That's right. don't start no more. Be none. And um, Jack would be like, "How would you like?" To fight something real, tangible. Let me tell you about Stargates.
Because Dang. if Tony literally went scorched earth after that, he wouldn't really have anywhere to go. No. Because he'd burn all of his favors. He would, he'd burn a lot of bridges bringing people down. Um, yeah, he'd, yeah, he, he'd, he'd fuck a lot of shit up. And he would, he, he'd give himself at best, he'd be able to be a small town, you know, deputy or a sheriff in a small town or something at that point if he wanted to stay in law enforcement. But if you don't want to be angsty, you can start it in that moment, in that moment where he's sitting in that room. And whoever you have come into the room, it, it, it doesn't have to be Jack O'Neill. It could be Phil Coulson. Nick Fury. Yeah. yeah. Or Phil. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we like Phil more. <laughs> yeah, we like Phil more. <laughs> but, and it could be, you know, so yeah, so it's like, it gives you a jumping off point. Because Tony's burned off his bridges. He got revenge, and he made them pay for it. But what's next for Tony? And you can tell the story of, of how he got there, ever how you want to. Whoever opens that door. Yeah, I don't think I would ever. Um, yeah, I like. I I always intrigued by Shield recruiting Tony. I just, I, every time I've ever plotted a story where S.H.I.E.L.D. recruits him, Tony says no. So I've never been able to get over that hurdle of where he's willing to say yes to S.H.I.E.L.D. You know um, what it is? There, there are too many Tonys in that. Well, yeah, I don't think S.H.I.E.L.D. can handle Denozo and um, Stark. Yeah. Right. It's a little much to well, ask I of did. them. I mean, I, mentioned, I did plot a, I plotted a little story. It was going to be a little short where it was an, like an Alex Shepard AU where Stark kept trying to hire Alex and flirting with him too. And he's like, no, I'm not coming with you to build weapons. I'm not coming with you to build weapons. Leave me alone. And like they ran into each other in coffee shops and he's like, you know, you need to come work for me. He's like, I work for my father. Go away. I'm not going to go and build your weapons. And he just keeps saying no, 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 no. And then Tony disappears in Afghanistan. And um, Alex figures out and figures out where he is approximately and sends his brothers after him. Um, so, Tony actually gets, so Tony actually gets rescued when David and John come in and says, Alex said we had to come get you. But he's still not like, building you weapons. He's, he's still not building you weapons. Yeah, and Tony could be like, bros. okay, but would he help me build a suit? <laughs> And Alex is all on board with that too. Yeah, and yeah. Plans to do. He's like, and then and then Alex kind of does wind up building him weapons because he comes on board and goes, "I'll build Iron Man weapons." <laughs> Nobody else. <laughs> That's so much fun. But no, I do like the idea of of Tony just 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 literally scorching the earth and just leaving nothing but you know people crying in corners, and then at the end of it, going, "Fuck now! Now what do I do?" But there being someone there who who kind of watch from afar and thinking, yeah, get them. Get them. <laughs> Hell yeah. Prime move. Good job. Awesome. Hey, Sam, go get that guy. <laughs> I think he's done now. Wait, wait, he's not done. Okay, 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 now, now you can go. <laughs> get that guy. Ha, 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 ha. 
Yes, exactly, Dark. <laughs> <laughs> now that yeah, now that you got that out of your system, how would you like to fight some race? Space vampires. <laughs> send tilk. <laughs> you might want to send in the heavy gun. <laughs> you you might need it. <laughs> I just think it, you know, that would be that would be really interesting and fun. I think you would be a formidable ally. He's like, what? <laughs> and what's up? What's up with your head? We really like your your revenge style. You'd like to put it on intergalactic scale. <laughs> You're welcome. You are welcome for your bunny, Dark. But no, I mean, so that's the fun, you know, that's the fun of, of, of because after your character's gotten their revenge and they've gotten their justice, you need to give them a reward. <laughs> Make them feel better about themselves. Yeah, because cold, cold revenge, just that it's just that, you know, that's just they get their revenge and they walk off into the sunset. We, we're really into this person's revenge because we really like them. So the fact that there seems like there's nothing for them after the revenge, it's a little bit like, oh, really? Can't we have, like, like a feel-good, like, epilogue or something? <laughs> the reward, Steve McGarrett. <laughs> I'm down for that reward. All aboard the mothership. <laughs> I don't think Ian and Steve would share. They don't I seem don't the kind of share. Either. They don't seem yeah. very sherry to me either. But, oh, wouldn't it be fun, like, if a whole bunch of people got together, like Phil Coulson and O'Neill, maybe um, if you leave Mayborn in charge of the NID, which always amuses me because I love Mayborn. I don't care how evil he is in the beginning or how hilarious he is at the end when he's the king of the planet. Um, that's some funny shit. I love Mayborn. I do. He's my favorite character, probably um, non-regular character on Stargate. So, like, they're all sitting there, and Phil's like, well, I'm not sure we can handle him. And Mayborn's like, my agents aren't going to work with him. They're afraid of him. And he's like, well, shit, I'll take him. <laughs> Hold on a minute. I don't well, think he's saying that. No, we're going to send him to Pegasus. <laughs> well, Mayborn could be like, I, I, I got my job. Actually, I got promoted to this position because of Denozo, but I really don't want to work with him. <laughs> because my boss is one of the former bosses, one of the people that he sunk. So, um, I don't really want to be on his shit list. I don't want him around. And they're all like, yeah, yeah, Pegasus is a good idea. Pegasus is a really good idea. <laughs> Get him far away. He's a little bit of a nut. Of course, I think you want to be careful how you make, what you make Tony feel forgives um because in this particular idea for me i would make their relationship paternal um or just a mentor situation where tony um just really loves gibbs in a platonic way because um otherwise his his hot sexy reward is going to be kind of bittersweet yeah. Because if he's in love with Gibbs in a, in a sexual way, if, if it's sexual, um, his reward on the on board the mothership is kind of bittersweet, and that's not that's not fun. Mm-mm. 
I'd, um, I'd, I'd definitely go rock that sort of paternal vibe like I did if found. The vibe I had with them there is totally the vibe I'd want to go with in a story like that. Unless you just want to make Tony just... The thing, the thing fun. is, is, um, and this is going to sound really weird, but in my mind, avenging a parental figure and avenging a lover are two entirely different things. There's a different mindset there. There's an urgency. Um, because, <clears throat> this is harsh, but parental figures... There's an, there's an expiration date there. You expect to lose your parents, your mentors. You expect them to die before you because they're older than you. But when you have a lover, that's a different thing because you're expecting to build a life with them, and now someone has taken that from you. There's a different desperation there. There's a different emotion there. Yeah, I mean, there's that lay waste to a continent thing with your parents, but it set the world on fire for someone you plan to build your life with. Not literally, mind you. <laughs> so does, does that make sense? Yeah, it could also be, I mean, it also depends upon, if you want to go the romantic route where they have a, like, there's a romantic love there, you have to decide if it's uh, requited or not. Because whether, if they're in a relationship, and as opposed to Tony's just has a kind of a unrequited crush on Gibbs kind of thing, it's a very different thing where they are in their dance with each other. Is it worse if it's unrequited? Um, worse. Um, I think maybe the anger might be worse in some ways, but the I think the getting over it, um, the moving on, would be easier. Um. Because if Gibbs is a close friend, but Tony's kind of secretly in love with him, I think I could see Tony flaring really super hot on that. As hot as if they were in a relationship. But the moving on part of it, they were never, their relationship was never realized. He's not actually mourning a lover, you know? Um, he's mourning their potential. Yeah, he's mourning what could have been. Um, even if he didn't think it was even a remote possibility, he's, you know, mourning somebody he actually cared about. And the loss that he, he cared about and the loss of that, even that remote possibility. Whereas if they were actually in a relationship, then he's wanting something real and tangible, and it makes the future relationship much more bitter. It's always difficult whether, it's always difficult to write a character who is single by virtue of having lost their spouse. Um, as anybody who's written a spouse that they love deeply. Um, anybody who's written Gibbs knows that he's not the easiest character to write. Um, because you don't want to do the disservice to the person they're in a relationship with. Um, but this spouse that they loved very much is is a big, it's almost a tangible presence. Uh, so it's not the easiest thing to tap dance around. Um, 
and it's something you have to decide if you want to to go into with Tony moving on to a new life. And if he's just finished, if you're intending to write a romantic story and he's just finished and you're starting at the point where he's finished, you know, destroying everybody who is even remotely involved with Gibbs' death, um, he's not going to be in the mental or emotional place to embark in a relationship that's anything but a rebound, right? Um, he's still going to be mourning. He actually probably hasn't even started to mourn yet by that point. He just went to mad and started destroying everything that had anything to do with Gibbs' death. And then he needs to mourn. So he's going to be going out to Pegasus to mourn. So if your intention is to send him to Pegasus or New York or wherever you're going to send him to be to find the person he's going to be in a relationship with, um, you may have to do a big time skip. Because you don't want Tony's anger to come across as disingenuous. His, his, his grief and his anger to come across as disingenuous because he... Um, jumps right into a relationship and is able to let go of and get get over Gibbs. Because you can't doubt his feeling if he's just finished destroying the lives of like 30 people. I mean, he, there's a lot of depth of feeling there to just get over really, really quickly without going through any kind of mourning period. Or therapy. <laughs> One of the things that I got dinged on in Ties That Bind early on was there were several people who um, found um, John's status as widowed um, difficult. Um, um, Well, one said that she felt like um, Rodney would forever be competing with Jared, which I don't think is fair. I don't think that's something that I wrote. Um, that's something that she saw between the lines. Um, she didn't think it was fair for John to bring up Jared in any situation or circumstance or, or, or scene. And I was like, are you serious? So, really? <laughs> is is that how that works? That's not how that works. Wow. We no, are that's not how that works. Summation of our experiences. And Jared was a big part of John's experiences. So, of course... His his, um, his memories, his experiences, his training are all, were all influenced by Jared. So so it, it has to have play. It, it has to have space. And honestly, people who don't talk about a spouse they've lost have never gotten over that spouse. Gibbs. Exactly. Gibbs rarely ever talks about Shannon. People didn't even know Shannon and Kelly existed for years. People who've known him forever had no idea that he had buried a wife and child. I mean, that's because he never got over it. He was incapable of speaking of them for years. There's a really awesome scene in... um, because Jeep says she's not the kind of woman that tells her husband to not remarry after she dies. There's an awesome scene in Madam Secretary where she's about to go somewhere dangerous. And she is talking about, you know, um, what happens if she does and how she'd like him to have a, a proper mourning period. And then get remarried for himself and for the children because they need, you know, 
They're going to need somebody. And then he's like, okay, how about, and she goes, no, 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 not her. (laughs) (laughs) And she's going to give him a list of acceptable women that he's allowed to date and marry after she dies. And it is hilarious. But it also speaks to her character that she was definitely telling him, I don't want you to spend your whole life. I don't don't want you to throw yourself in my grave. I, I want you to get up, dust yourself off, fall in love again, take care of you, take care of our kids. It was a very beautiful moment in that funny. I mean, um, there was some funny attached to it, you know, to, to lighten it up. But it was beautiful. And um, it's really selfish to take that kind of stand that you want your spouse to basically to be, you know, in mourning the rest of their life if if you die. And I don't think Shannon would have wanted that for Gibbs. No. No. But, you know, there's, there's a few... Um... There's a couple of um, I've read a couple of stories where um, when Tony and Gibbs get together, um, Tony makes a point of telling Gibbs, you know, you don't have to like keep them shut away. You can talk about them, um, and like the author takes, I, I, I guess I've seen this in more than one story, but the author takes the approach that it was Gibbs' wives who asked that um, that shut down Gibbs talking about them. Um, and that he learned not to bring them up because the wives didn't want. And I could see that that could be, um, I, I could see that being actually plausible, that that could happen. But I could also see it could it could be a reason why Gibbs doesn't bring them up and why he um, hoards them so tightly to himself is because when he, you know, tried to discuss them with his um, spouses in the past, they've shut him down. And I could see that leading to fractures in their relationships. Uh, because he revered Shannon and Kelly so intensely and that he is told, you know, don't talk about them, um, that it would set the new relationship on a bad path. I think that he can discuss Shannon and Kelly with not bringing up the fact that he killed the person who killed them. Yeah. Now there's classic revenge for you. You killed my wife, Classic. I'm going to blow your head off. Classic yep. revenge. It's understandable revenge. It's, yeah. It's the kind of revenge that, you know, society tends to go, okay, I get it. Um, but. The law doesn't like <laughs> it, but we understand it. You know? Eye for an eye. That's definitely yeah, eye, yeah, for, eye an for an eye. eye. Um, Kelly Hernandez, I think what was interesting, um, Gibbs was so cavalier about it. He clearly did not care if he went to jail. He used his own weapon. And, yeah, he, um, he, he clearly didn't care that, that there was forensic evidence. Um, he may have even expected to go to jail. Um. So it was interesting. Um, I think if you have a Gibbs who's trying to get away with that, he would have used a different rifle. I do think Gibbs. I think it, I do think it is canon that Gibbs was recovering from an injury when Shannon and I think if he'd been injured in. 
some action or something. And he, um, I do think that's canon. Um, either it's either canon or I've read it so much that it's invaded my head as canon. Um, but it, it's also pretty alluded to in canon that Mike, um, Mike Frank told Gibbs who was responsible for their death and where this guy was. So, no, he didn't face any repercussions on the show for what happened because Abby basically, she printed out a copy, she was a paper copy only of her report about the, um, Hernandez's body was actually turned over to NCIS as part of a plot to bring down Gibbs. Um, and Abby was asked to do the forensics, and she figured out that the shot that had killed Hernandez came from Gibbs' rifle. Um, she asked him what she was supposed to do about that. He told her he wasn't going to tell her one way or the other. She printed out um, a single copy of the report, and that was it. And um, Vance eventually buried the report. It's not gone. He put it in, um, he d- went to file storage, and he put it in a box. Um, of unrelated case files, the report. So Vance, no, the only person who knows where that report is and the evidence that Gibbs killed Hernandez is Vance, and that is the leverage that Vance has on Gibbs. Because Gibbs has leverage on Vance, which is that he knows that Vance is in Vance. So it was their little mutual, you know, they have a whole um, mutually assured destruction thing going on. Except not really, because there's a statute of limitations for murder in Mexico. Is there? Mm-hmm. But it would, um, even if Gibbs couldn't be convicted of that crime, um, he wouldn't be able to keep his badge. So... It wouldn't put him in prison, whereas what Vance did could put him in prison. Although, actually, if the, the reality is is that with what Vance did, they would cover it up. They would retire him, but it would be covered up because it's too detrimental to the agency to let the news of Vance not being Vance hit, be, become known. It would They would retire him, and he'd be under a gag order to never discuss it. Um, and it's possible. I mean, I, I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if anybody who knew was in the know about that outside of Vance wasn't um, permanently hushed up, because it would be so detrimental and such a big scandal. Because every um, case Vance ever touched in his entire tenure at NCIS, and every case um, in the agency as his tenure as director could come up for appeal. It could be catastrophic. For the agency, so super catastrophic. But it's 18 years is the statute of limitations in Mexico for murder. So they wouldn't have even tried to prosecute Gibbs for murder. The the, the statute was up. Yeah, it was just about ruining him, and he'd he'd have lost his job, but he wouldn't have gone to jail. He honestly probably wouldn't have even lost his job because again, it, it boils back to. Um, the thing with Vance 
And he might have been retired just like Vance would have, because Gibbs is overseeing many, many cases. And there were times when Gibbs acted as the de facto director of NCIS. Yeah. They yeah. would they would have hidden it just as so. I think, but Gibbs Gibbs had been Gibbs could have been retired quite easily. They may not have fired him, but I don't think that they would have kept him on because it would have been another thing—a scandal. You've got an agent who committed a murder in another country, known to commit a murder in another country, and the the if 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 they hadn't buried that report, um, the guy who was the brother of um, Paloma Reynosa. Um, Hernandez's son, who was under under a fake, working as the, the as an ambassador under a fake name, um, he could have aired NCIS's dirty laundry um, if they tried to keep Gibbs on. So, I think I think when it comes to scandals at a level that affects the credibility of an agency, they just retire people. Um, okay, you're retired. Quickly, you get your you got your pension. Get out. Very quietly, go away yeah, now. Rivera. Rivera, Alejandro Rivera. So there was Paloma Reynosa and Alejandro Rivera were the kids of um, Pedro Hernandez. Um, and there was that whole spider in the fly arc. I think that was the end of season six. No, going in at the end of season seven. Sorry, end of, uh, going in at the end of season seven was the Rule 51 spider in the fly arc where they explain where that whole thing comes up. And it starts with Alejandro Rivera. Um, asking Abby to come down to do a, because he worked for the Mexican government, and asking her to do a, a, like a, be a guest speaker at a conference. And she um, was then asked to look into this cold kiss of theirs, which was the body of Pedro Hernandez. Um, and that's when she ran the ballistics and stuff. So the whole thing was a plot by the Reynosa cartel um, to get revenge on Gibbs. But by that point, it would have definitely been past the statute of limitations. And yet they seem to know that this is a plot hole. How the fuck did they know that Gibbs used the same weapon that was his service weapon? How did they it know that the curious. ballistics would match? It is curious that, that the, that the Reynoses knew that. Yeah. Polite is a I'm, I'm curious is a very polite word for bad writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but how did they know that? Without bad writing, without bad canon writing, there'd be nothing for us to do. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Because I have a hard time writing in some fandoms because I don't think I thought I don't feel like I have anything to add. Yeah, it's like this is all good. And that's my and when I'm in the mood for this, I'll go watch that episode. When I'm in the mood for this trope, I'll go watch that episode. <laughs> some fandoms are just like that. I just go Because I couldn't I'm not sure I could write in um in uh, Farscape because I think it's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> there's a, there's nothing perfect. about Farscape that I want to redo. Uh, well, I mean, for me, a lot Firefly is the same way. Other than Wash being dead, which it still didn't happen. Um, no. Uh, so other than the very end, um, which all I would have to write is, I mean, it'd be very short. Wash didn't die. <laughs> I was very happy with canon. So, um Oh, look, Wash had on body armor. Yeah. 
stuff. He's still a leaf in the motherfucking wind, assholes. (laughs) (laughs) They got him into a med bay, and he's fine. For fuck's sake. Babylon 5, I feel the same way. I Babylon 5 is awesome. I, I find the canon for Babylon 5 very um, intimidating. Yeah. Some, some franchises, I find them conceptually interesting. It's not that I really have a lot of problems with canon, um, except maybe that I'd like to explore some ships or whatever. Um, and it's just like the world conceptually is interesting, but these are usually big worlds, like the Star Trek franchise, right? Like you have a huge universe, and um, it's just fun to write. And they sort of made um, that you know from from a um, from the franchise's perspective, they sort of made a way of life of um, getting new people to add on to the franchise. So it's just. Um, um, that would be more of a it would be just just for fun, but I tend to not find tend to not have like those bunnies that just bite me in the butt and I just have to write them as much in stories like that. Like, most of the time, when it's just like something just is on me, like I got to do this. It's in a fandom where there's just these elements that I really love and all this shit that I have to fix, and I just feel like I have to. It's like oh, I'm compelled. I have to do I'm this. Compelled. I'm compelled to send Tony to Beacon Hills and they can fix everything. Oh, my coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But some bunnies do grab you that way. And I think that revenge topics specifically can be very, very satisfying viscerally as an author. So it makes it so much more fun to write, which is why I think it's so prevalent in fandom. Because we don't often get to get revenge personally, so when we can do it fictionally, it's like, yay! <laughs> Come on, motherfucker! <laughs> Alan Moore just mentioned she read Wash as an Immortal, um, like a Highlander type thing. Uh, new that, head totally work, that totally works for me as long as, as Zoe is an Immortal, because that is an OTP, and you just can't fuck them up by making one of them an Immortal. <laughs> I'm just saying. Don't mess with my OTP. I only have like that one. <laughs> actually, I was thinking about the, the me sending Tony to the Teen Wolf universe. Like, it sounds like I sent him on an adventure. Um, that was a little bit of a revenge thing. It's not. It's it's a little bit of a bleak because Tony, you know, there's all the stuff that won't happen. So. But I found the way Gerard is handled in canon to be super unsatisfying. Actually, the artists <laughs> in general. The way they were handled in canon really didn't do it for me. Um, so I just felt, you know, it's a little bit, you know, Tony's kind There is a revenge element because um, Tony finding his nephew being held hostage by um, Gerard. There's definitely a revenge element, especially against Gerard. But... Um, Tony doesn't, of course, Tony doesn't know that he's on a revenge mission. It's just, I know that. <laughs> Which sounds like, it sounds ridiculous. I mean, it's like but it's still, it's still awesomely, um, 
it's still awesomely satisfying, satisfactory to, to send your character on a revenge mission, even if they don't know it. That's right. I mean, he does eventually go on a, in the third, because I did plot three novellas for this series, and by the third one, he's definitely on a, you know, scorched earth kind of thing. Um, I mean, he kind of, like, raises everything to the ground. But I don't know that it's really a revenge thing so much as this shit's all sucked up and we need to start over kind of thing. It was unsatisfactory. It's extremely unsatisfactory. Um, the, can, the way they handled the Argentine canon just did not make anybody feel good. Um, so, that's some, again, it's the thing is like sometimes some shit just needs fixing. And sometimes some stories are like the author's revenge against, you know, canon. <laughs> It has nothing to do with the character yeah. revenge. It's, it's the author taking revenge. Um, yeah. I'll confess to that. There have been times when I have taken revenge on canon personally. I, I, I can't even say otherwise. I've also taken revenge on fandom. It's, <laughs> oh, so that's the way. You've done it. Don't deny it. Sentinel. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One might even say I've made a hobby of it. I'm just you might even say. Yeah, I might even say. Lady Holder still holding my coffee. Back. I think she walked off with it. <laughs> yes, I have written stuff out of spite. I actually inserted gay, lesbian sex into stories just out of spite. I added rimming to a story out of spite. I have a scene um, that I have plotted for season two of um, Sentinels of Atlantis where Patrick Shepard plows a row because someone told me I couldn't write Jack as a bottom. Watch me, bitch. Watch me. Oh. Watch me. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to that. I don't. I've only. I think I've only written um, Jack in a as a main main character um, of a romantic partner in one story. I think one. And um, but yeah, if I ever he's ever in a in a romantic pairing in any story I write, there's definitely going to be a bend over Jack moment, just because. Because the fact don't that, tell me what to do. The fact that that fandom wants you to. Born um, for, for Jackie on the bottom. I just, you know, no. Yeah, there's the spite moments got to happen. That's author revenge. That, there you go. That's author revenge tropes. <laughs> when you put in things that the fandom consensus is that they don't like. Like, oh, really? Let me see what, tell you what I think about you. I'm sure that there's a subset of Sentinel fans who thinks The Awakening was a spite fic. <laughs> but it really wasn't. I had no idea you bitches were so sensitive. <laughs> it's it maybe it's sort of like now it feels like it's spiteful like you okay look see but um at the time you were just trying to it wasn't meant to be there were right. a bunch of fifties about it 
I was just trying to participate. I was just trying to be part of you, and you were mean to me. But I'll never, well, ever, I... ever, ever, as long as I write, ever write Blair as anything less than fucking immensely competent. Right. You could take that to the bank. Or as my mama was is fond of saying, and I don't know why, you can stick that your in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> that's it, the magical butt sex mystery tour. That's it. That that's the phrase that I used. <laughs> PSA. <laughs> It was not the whole fandom. It was just like, I don't know, four or five people pretending to be 20. They didn't even change their vocabulary. I could obviously tell that they were being written by the same person. Dumb bitches. There was, I, I actually was reading this thing, this sort of account of some sort of fandom war that had blown up in some fandom I don't even read. So I can't even tell you why I was reading this. It's just every once in a while I get into some bizarre, you know, internet spiral. Fan lore. Yeah. No, I I did get some links off fan lore, but mostly I was going out to blog posts elsewhere. And um, there was this reference about somebody at one point in some horrible war between... Somebody had created something like 600... Fake, ide- fake identities that they were posting comments from to try to bolster support for their position in some fandom war. Um, Are you fucking kidding me? That's a lot of dedication to your needing to get your point of view across. Look, with that kind of dedication, you could have put us on Mars by now. Come on now. I, I don't <laughs> I don't have that much time. You need a fucking database to keep track of all those. You would, and to keep track of what you said, I mean, I just, I just, I don't, I don't, I mean, they had to have been pretty transparent since they were cops, apparently pretty easily, but um, I don't, I don't have time to keep track of 600. Um, I can barely keep track of, you know, real me and this me. (laughs) (laughs) Not that this this me isn't real me, but it's just, you know, I have to be careful I have to be careful which name I sign off on emails sometimes, right? Which is why, it's one of the reasons why, um, any emails that come to me um, that's always sign off with my initials is because that way if I ever do it in my real email, um, I can just go, oh, I, I must have accidentally struck a key, like a random key a couple times, don't think anything about it. There's a whole, there's a whole reason why I never use my name to sign off emails. I have a signature built into my email account, so I don't sign anything. Now, sometimes I'll assign my initials sometimes, um, like if I'm doing, um, but I'm very careful with it. Um, I have a whole podcast dedicated how to be Batman in fandom. It's important that you be able to guard your secret identity. But, I mean, just guarding one is sufficient effort, thank you. I couldn't guard 600. I couldn't even guard six. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be really fucking difficult. I mean, you I would need a database. You would need a I mean, database. I'm like, am I going to write this week, or am I going to keep track of my five others? 
can't do it. <laughs> Dear Internet Trolls, this is our charity where we offer to send you sex toys to help give you something else to do with your time so that you'll leave us alone. If I thought it would work, I'd be all for it. But I actually do not think. I think internet trolls like trolling more than they like sex. Dildos for dumbasses? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. hard time funding for that because I personally don't think a dumbass deserves a deal though. Hey, that domain name is available. Dildos for dumbasses? Yes, Dildos for dumbasses is available. (laughs) Dot com, no less. Dot com. (laughs) Actually, they're all available. .biz, .online, .org. It actually would be a .org. I think it would be a .org. It would definitely be a charity. Yeah, it would be a .org. One thing... Um, that I think is often overlooked, especially especially in NCIS. I see this most often in NCIS when when Tony has his his revenge or his um his justice, he scorches the earth so much um, that he makes it impossible for him to have any kind of quality of life afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like um, hey. NCIS readers, did you know that violating um, top secret information and passing it out will get you put in jail? So sending a whole bunch of classified documents to a reporter at the Washington Post would get Tony put in jail? Did you know that? (laughs) He's not going to walk off into the the sunset. Even if everybody he exposed pays for it, he's going to jail. It's also profoundly unethical. So he's violating his own ethics. If you're going to go that route, own it. Prologue. Tony in the jail cell counting how many cigarettes he's got. I'm just saying, own it. Yeah. Ramifications. He can't. He can't burn all of his bridges on the way out the door. Um, now the thing is, the bottom line actually is a big a whistleblower in law enforcement is never going to be is very successfully employable within that law enforcement community. He can't just whistleblow the fuck out of NCIS and then go work for the FBI. It's really implausible. Um, and if the, he managed to to get there, he's got no career prospects, none. He'll be a field agent forever. Um, that's just not the way that community works. Uh, because you're, it's just a, it's a perception. It doesn't matter if he did anything wrong or not; is irrelevant. Um, his, his the bosses at the FBI 
are not going to um, perceive him well for blowing the whistle on his agency. So what he has to do is follow official channels, be a team player. Or be really sneaky. Or be really sneaky. I could could be, I thought, so let's say you've got a a situation where Tony is like, he realizes, and it would have to be at a point where he realizes that everybody is ethically compromised. I think that'd be a tough pill for Tony to swallow. What if Tony, like, behind the scenes, like, I want no credit, I don't want to be involved, he goes to SecNav, okay, and says, this is what I know. Gibbs killed this dude, it's being covered up. Vance isn't Vance. It's being covered up. They've got this whole little thing going on. Now, I know that you can't do anything officially about any of this. I understand. And I don't want to see the agency brought to harm. I want to work with you. I will keep this information to myself. But you have to protect the agency because that's what's important, right? Manipulate the fuck out of the situation to get SecMav to do something and Tony's hands are completely clean, and the only person who knows is Beckmouse. Oh, and by the way, Ziva's a spy. <laughs> <laughs> and Ziva, yeah, and Ziva's a spy. So he can rain tons of justice down on NCIS and look completely uninvolved and make it a condition of, look, I'm telling you about this huge vulnerability that nobody knows about except the parties involved and me because I've uncovered it. But I want you to be able to protect your interests and keep NCIS as clean as it can be. So, and he could be the behind-the-scenes mastermind for bringing down Gibbs, Ziva, Mossad, Eli David, um, Director Vance. He could blow the whole thing up and walk away looking like he was completely uninvolved. And Sethnab is not going to want to admit that he's not the one who uncovered these problems. He's not going to want to admit that the problem existed at all to anybody because he can't afford to let that be known outside of his own agency. So he's not even going to tell another direct, another agency director what happened. He's just going to go quietly deal with it. Because he wouldn't want it to be look like he let that kind of crap go on in his house and that nobody knew about it. So... Tony could be kind of manipulative and fly behind the scenes, get SecNav to do all the dirty work. Tony walks away, and nobody knows that he was the instrument of his agency's ruin, basically. I'm totally into that idea, actually. I don't know where Tony would go, but I'm totally into the idea. It's interesting because it also, um, but here's the kicker about anonymous retribution, is that it does deprive him of that really viscerally satisfying moment of his targets knowing that they're that he is responsible for their downfall. Yeah, yeah. And that's a question of is he more interested in justice or revenge? And you'd have to know his motivation. Because if he's more interested in justice and in making sure the, that, you know, but doing it in a manipulative way, not so much revenge, he would totally go the route where he was completely hands-off. But if his motivation is revenge, hmm. It could be, you know, a little bit of both, and, like, just 
at least let him smirk at them when they're being arrested. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look what's happening to you. That's so sad. Well, it could also be a case of like if he he talks to Gibbs, and Gibbs makes some kind of comment or something after the fact, and Tony's kind of removed from it, and Tony's like, "Yeah, it's kind of interesting how someone who knew all of you guys' deep secrets somehow sex man found out about all that stuff." Um, and he doesn't have to overtly admit to anything, but can let Gibbs know exactly who was behind all of this. So, Tony, did you wrap me out to, um, sex bath? Well, Gibbs, I believe in justice. <laughs> and fast cars and hot women. What do you believe in? Walk away really happy. (laughs) (sighs) But that is something to consider when you, um, like you just mentioned, um, Kara, that when you're considering what your character is going after, is what end result are you going to get? Because if the end result doesn't satisfy vengeance, then are they really more pursuing justice? If it doesn't satisfy justice, are they pursuing revenge? And then you have to make adjustments accordingly. And they may be subtle adjustments, but they are adjustments. Tony likes cute shoes. <laughs> I'm just saying that you know it, that anonymous justice does you know rob you of um, your visceral satisfaction, but there are ways you can work it in without actually damaging your character. But yeah, you well, also a lot have to people... keep in mind that kind of revenge, um, while they wouldn't know for certain, they could speculate, and that could put Tony on the hit list for Mossad. Yeah, Especially if Ziva is caught up in that net. When you have an excuse. Well, that could be... You know, the funny thing is, if you could have this thing where, like, Tony agrees to stay... And where the team is investigated, and the only person who comes out clean is Tony, so he's there for the whole thing. And when the when when the fire's out, Tony is the only one who survives the investigation of the major case response team. Um, and then they can't be too suspicious of him because he was investigated just as heavily as everybody else was. And there's sort of. Um, but doesn't that make him look un- incompetent that all those people around him were? Utterly. Well, actually, that is that is an issue too. Is that, that there, there's a lot of tropes that are quite common in NCIS. Where I, I, it's funny how I read the stories and I go, "Wow, Tony looks really incompetent." And I know that's not the author's intention. Is <laughs> that everybody was breaking the law around Tony, or whatever, and um, Tony didn't notice. 
Yeah, so I think yeah, I think in that case you're right. He would probably need to help, to leave before the shit storm happened, and probably work it out with Seknab that he leaves a couple months before the shit storm happens, so that it doesn't seem like it's connected to his departure. In a major way. Yeah, Ziva did ruin everything. But I, I need to put on a t-shirt. <laughs> the strange shoes. I remember the strange shoes. Strange shoes that absolutely make no sense. The ones that look like a slingshot, I'm finding to be particularly amusing. I think the ones that look like ballerina slippers look terribly uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if anybody walks on those. They don't. They don't. You're, you're not actually supposed to walk on those. Maybe unless you're a ballerina. A lot of these are just ugly. They're just ugly. <laughs> Sarah says she broke an ankle just looking at the picture. Because they're all high heels, yeah. Very high heels. One thing as a thought, my final comment, sort of, I guess, probably about revenge or justice stories is before you embark down one of these kinds of plots is know what, know your character and make sure you're really solid on what they would do and why they're doing it and everything about them. Have their voice and their motivation really clear in your head and then every step of the, pl- the, the plot of the revenge or justice thing that you're doing, ask yourself if this is in character for your character. It's really important to sanity check those things, because you can destroy your own characterization so easily in a revenge type story. Um, you see people do this all the time, completely unintentionally. At least I hope it's unintentional, that they make their the, um, the hero worse than the um, villain. And you know, making your character unsympathetic is usually never the goal. Have your main character be unsympathetic. So, characterization is really important to pay really close attention to because it's very, it's very character-driven, that kind of thing. It's not like it's all, this is all an internal motivation. And if you get that wrong, um, revenge themes are internal motivators, right? So you've got to... It's not like something happened to them. It's not like the invasion of New York landed on their heads and these external events and they're reacting to them. This is all internally driven. So if it goes awry in how they act or how they react or what they do, you can turn your character into, you know, you, you, don't, you don't want Harry Potter to wind up being worse than Voldemort. Not the goal. Unless that is your goal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that could be your goal. You might be making him into a Dark Lord, in which case, have fun, but own it. Own it. That's what you're doing. Yeah, but own it. Yeah. Yeah, you can't be making him out to be a beacon of the light when he's doing things worse than what Voldemort does to anybody. (laughs) 
I think, though, if you're going to have Harry be a Dark Lord, he has to be worse than Voldemort. He has to bring it. He has to bring his A game. <laughs> because Voldemort was bringing his B game. He wasn't bringing an A game. I'm just saying. There was I nothing about his plan that actually equaled taking over a whole country. He basically wanted to occupy a school. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a man who planned for country domination. So if Harry's going to be a dark lord, you better motherfucking bring his A-game when you you do it. Bring his A-game because those Death Eaters were all all B. They were (laughs) B-team. I'm just saying. (laughs) Yes, yes. That needs to be the title of somebody's story. The Death Eaters were the B team. <laughs> I challenge you, go write it. The Death Eaters were the B team. I'm just saying. We're down to a minute. But yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to have a Harry Potter revenge where he goes back in time and he becomes a Dark Lord and fucks up everybody, he just needs to be better at it than everybody else. Just bring it. I'm out of ideas for topics, so if you've got anything to ask me, go over to the Ask Me Anything page of my website and ask me some fucking questions, people. Say goodnight, Jillian. Good night, everyone. <laughs>